This week on Laser, we discuss whether tuna contaminated by the Fukushima disaster is safe to eat, the cancellation of plans for a wind farm off the coast of the UK, and developments in super hydrophobic waterproof materials. Welcome to the Laser Podcast. I'm Cameron Kopis, and my co-hosts today are Alex, who's been on the show before. Have I? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, you have. And, <laughs> and Heather, who's new. Yeah, sure. Um, my name's Heather Grant, and I'm up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I work for, uh, I guess it's an environmental activist organi- organization, and I work on a lot of sort of marine conservation issues. And one of the things that I've been working on a lot lately is um, trying to get some of Canada's tuna fishing policies changed and in making tuna management better. So I guess that's kind of where my interests are. Okay. What's, what's the problem with the tuna farming? Um, well, so... Bluefin tuna, it's not so much the farming, um, but bluefin tuna has been overexploited for a really long time. It's worth a lot of money. And uh, in the last year or two, we started to see indications that their populations are finally uh, on an increase again, which is great, except that, um, you know, people have put a lot of work into uh trying to manage these fisheries properly and so the second they see an increase they want to start fishing more again which is kind of not going to work so purpose of being careful in the first place exactly um so basically our um, position is just trying to get everybody to hold their horses and wait to make sure that there's actually science indicating that there is an increase and they are recovering before we go fishing more of them okay and are these tuna off the coast of Nova Scotia? so that's... Yeah, so there's Atlantic bluefin tuna and Pacific bluefin tuna, and we deal with, we have, there's two populations of the Atlantic. Uh, the western, which is off the coast of Canada, eastern coast of Canada and the U.S., and then the eastern, which is like Mediterranean European tuna. Okay. Are they all, are they similar? How, how different are they? I mean, they're, uh, they're all, I mean, they're the same species. Their populations are considered distinct for scientific purposes, but they do mix a fair bit. Uh, it's just more for management because trying to manage an entire ocean full of tuna would be impossible. So they try and <laughs> split it up a little bit. We should tax them. Yeah. <laughs> tax the tuna. Tax the tuna using our it's, Pacific Ocean. It's already kind of impossible, but they try. Okay. Well, yeah, we called you on here because the, the theme for today's uh, episode is 
ocean stuff or I don't know. I think I think what were you gonna call it? The, we were talking about the Fukushima leak. Yeah. <laughs> radiation in your fish. Sure, we can call it radiation in your fish. That's, like, that would be good. How much does your fish get? <laughs> Love the dark fish. Dark fish. <laughs> okay. So the first first paper we want to talk about. Well, the reason we wanted to talk about this is because right now it's uh, December of 2013, and Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident happened in, when was that? March 2011. That was a long time ago, and people are still sort of freaking out about radiation exposure from this nuclear power plant. Yeah. And a lot of the news has been specifically about radiation exposure in from tuna that people are eating from Pacific bluefin tuna not Atlantic but right but we we realized that there was a lot of misinformation about that and uh, it's kind of ridiculous that the news just talks about radiation and suddenly and it's just dangerous and they don't consider what radiation is or how much radiation is being uh, absorbed or transmitted or anything. It's just that radiation is bad in general. <laughs> Seems like kind of a silly uh, silly thing to talk about, or silly thing to, silly way to think about it. Yeah. So the paper is from, it's called Evaluation of Radiation Doses and Associated Risk from the Fukushima Nuclear Accident to Marine Biota and Human Consumption of Seafood. Uh, it was published in PNAS, which is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, right? Yeah, so that's a United, that's a Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That sounds right. It's published way back in June of 2013 um, by Nicholas Fisher, which is actually kind of a funny name for a <laughs> paper about tuna. He I was thought. fishing, huh? Yeah, <laughs> from Stony Brook University, and I think the the paper is free online, so I'll post a note uh, a link to it. <clears throat> And the what the paper does does is they uh, take all the data from about the radiation from the Fukushima Daiichi disaster and the uh, measured doses that they found in fish, both in Japan and in the United States, like off the coast of California, and compare that to health effects and how much you you receive, how much radiation you receive from other things on a normal basis. The what I guess what happened at the power plant was that because they lost power, they needed to shut off the reactors. And you can't just do that quickly in a nuclear power plant because the whole thing is really hot. Yeah. And you have a lot of hot radioactive material. So you flush water through it. And because they tried to shut it off so quickly, and they had to shut it off so quickly, they had to just pump a lot of water through and it, it just got released into the ocean. This water that was, it was coming in contact with the, the radioactive fuel. And so it was picking up some radioactive particles and getting warmed up and then shot back into the ocean, uh, which is not great. Well, that shouldn't have happened in the first place. It's the, the whole system is, is supposed, supposed to be, to be isolated. Well, the new ones are perfectly contained, but this right. was an old old nuclear power plant. It wasn't perfectly designed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there were some problems. And then, of course, there was the whole earthquake and tsunami that probably didn't help. Yeah, the way, the way I understand it is they have all these these storage tanks for spent fuel rods, mm-hmm. right? And they, they leave them in this in this water, and uh, and there's some very very slow leaks on some of these tanks, and that's 
Which is expected. You can't have something perfectly right. sealed, right? So what, what we're really talking about is uh, a lot of different kinds of radiation, I guess. This is the only stuff that really matters from this is uh, ionizing radiation. Which it's mostly is, alpha, I think. Yeah, almost right. entirely alpha. Alpha radiation. Which is, um, it's a one proton and one neutron that just flies off from an atom. Is it? I thought it was... Oh, two protons, two, protons two, and neutrons. two neutrons. I'm sorry. It's equivalent yeah. to a helium nucleus. Yeah, it's equivalent to a helium nucleus. So it's basically just shooting off helium atoms almost, except without the electrons. They would become helium. As soon as they're grounded and slowed down, they get an electron from somewhere and they become helium. And usually, I mean, this radiation isn't... It's the... It's pretty harmful because it has. it's really heavy and it can knock cells apart and knock other atoms apart. And so that does a lot of damage to stuff like DNA, but you can shield from it pretty easily. Um, so your, your real damage from alpha radiation is when you're exposed to it all the time, all over your body, or internally, which I guess would happen if you were eating right. alpha irradiated things. Yeah, I don't think that the penetration depth for something like, an, like a naturally emitted alpha particle is, is pretty small in most materials. I, I don't yeah. know for sure, but I remember a teacher telling me something like a thick piece of paper can stop most alpha, you know, unless it's an unnatural, uh, unusually high energy. Yeah. Piece of paper is generally the, the, uh, That's <laughs> analogy used in, in all the radiation stuff we, I've learned too. I wonder how accurate that is. If that's just a thing that they, a commonality that they want to establish. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably pretty accurate. If it's even if the thing is if it's an order of magnitude off, it still means that we can shield it really easily. Yeah. So. <laughs> so there's a lot of I mean there's already a lot of uh, ionizing radiation everywhere, uh, but in I guess today we're just talking about the the tuna specifically. Yeah. So first, I think we need to talk about natural radioactive elements that you find. Yeah. Instead of the ones that came from the power plant. So in the natural ocean, you're going to find, well, any, anywhere in the world, you'll find uh, potassium-40, which is radioactive, a radioactive isotope, and polonium-210. Polonium-210 is, is specially concentrated in marine animals because um, it comes from the uranium decomposition trail. Yes. Where, yeah. 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 <laughs> so uranium decomposes into other stuff and then other stuff, and eventually it decomposes into radon. So you have radon gas in basements, and that just comes out of rocks. It's all over the, the earth. It's not something that was, like, put there because of nuclear bombs or anything like that. It's just naturally in, in all the rock. You're it must have, have been the aliens, personally, I think. <laughs> I always blame the aliens because it's the only thing that makes sense, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I had uh, I've been re reading because um, I re really don't know very much about radiation, so I was trying to educate myself a little bit before we talked. But um, yeah, I read uh, on one really interesting blog on the subject, but that, um, about sort of how the ocean is already filled with all kinds of radiation, and they actually use it to. Um, yeah, they use, uh, I believe, they use traces from the nuclear testing in the 50s and 60s, um, and they uh, use a test to estimate um, when the 
water in the deep ocean has last been at the surface and had contact with those materials because sometimes water will stay in the deep ocean for decades or even potentially hundreds of years before ever coming to the surface. So it's uh, it, they use it as a tool to sort of track ocean uh, currents. Cool. Yeah, I've heard of them doing things like that to uh, date bones. Right. So like for, for elephant ivory and that kind of stuff to find out if it's uh, legal or if it's been, or if it was poached. Huh. They can see, they can check, and they can say, okay, if 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 the elephant was already killed before a certain date in the nuclear testing, they won't find any of these certain radioisotopes in it. But if it's if it, the elephant was alive after that, it'll have it in the in the ivory, so they can oh, tell okay. uh, whether basically whether the ivory is legal or illegal to trade. Neat. So that's yeah, that's kind of cool. I didn't know they did that for the ocean. I wonder which uh, which isotopes it picks up and how long they last, because that's really neat. Yeah, I'm just looking at... Um, I had a thing pulled up, but now I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. So there's these, naturally in the ocean, I think we already mentioned, potassium-40 and the polonium-210, uh, which just come from natural processes. The potassium has been there since the creation of the Earth. Its half-life is 1.2 billion years for potassium-40, so it's just always going to be here. Um, polonium-210's half-life is only 138 days, but it's constantly being created as uranium decays through its chain into other stuff, and then into radon gas, and then radon decays into polonium. And so there's constantly more being produced as it's decaying into other things. Um, but what we probably want to talk about is bioaccumulation of, of these heavy elements in in marine biota yeah so i mean it's it's obviously a a large problem with sort of megafauna things like whales and tuna and sharks and things like that um if you think about any kind of contaminant making its way into some little plankton or a little fish and those little fish are eating a ton of the plankton and then the larger fish are eating a ton of the little fish and as you get up the food chain those contaminants are getting more and more concentrated in one individual animal. So by the time you get to something as big as a whale, they're just like chock full of toxins and that kind of thing. Okay. So that happens with everything though, right? Is that just... Yeah. I mean, in in the ocean, I think, I mean, I can't really say this with any authority, but it seems to be a little bit more prevalent. Um, but just because there are so many things that are filtering... Um, every little particle out of the water. They're even seeing it's becoming an issue with plastic now. There's little particles of plastic and they're find big, finding big clumps of them and things that have, you know, been taken up by like little organisms and then made it into stomachs of like larger fish. Um, so it's pretty much throughout the ocean, I would say. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Does that yeah. kind of thing just like stay in the stomach or like, yeah, so they they find like they found whales that are just full of little bits of plastic. They're finding them in oysters and stuff now. So if you like oysters, think again because they're picking all of the little tiny bits of plastic that come off of our clothes and get broken down to small little pieces and they're finding them in the guts of the oysters that people are eating. So that's kind of disturbing. Five ounces are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone eat I never want to eat bivalves. It's one of the only things I just don't want to eat. 
I, ever since I, I mean, I've never been a fan of them, but ever since I dissected them in school, they're just, ugh. They have so many gross parts. Don't want to eat them. The thing I don't <laughs> like about them the most is, like, you're eating them, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is a, this is okay, this is a fine experience. And then you get that little crunchy sand thing. There's, like, mm-hmm. something in them that's crunchy, and then I just can't, I can't get it. Yep. Well, it is sand, right? It might be sand. It could be a number of things. It could be the skull of a tiny fish. It could be... Who knows what it could be? <laughs> it could be poop, because they eat a lot of poop. I guess that would be Whatever's floating yeah. around. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Think, think about what their job is, like, from an ecological standpoint. They sit on the ground and just eat the terrible things that collect. That fall on them? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If you could take all the intestines out of them, I'd eat them no problem. It's just the, it's the fact that their digestive system is still in them when you eat them. Like, yeah. How much That's... is there to dissect of a bivalve? Uh, I mean, not too much. We pretty much would just take the, the shell off, one, one of their shells off, and then put dye on them and see how their digestive system works. And okay. it's pretty foul. Okay. Yeah. I want to Where are now. they on, like, they're, they're, where's the trophic level of something like a clam or an oyster? Do they eat everything? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're detrivores, right? So they are filter feeders, so they pretty much just eat whatever comes by them. Um, okay, so it'll eat other fish if they're dead, or or it'll eat uh, fish if <laughs> could it? Uh, not really, no. They're, I mean, they're too small to eat any kind of fish. There are some, there are some, like, snails and stuff that are predatory, but for the most part, um, they're just, like, little tiny particles or plankton or, you know, anything like that. Okay. Predatory snails? Yeah, yeah. They're, like, I mean, cone snails, they're poisonous and they'll, um, they'll sting you and then eat you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not a person, but if you're a fish. I've heard of cone snails, yeah. Yeah. That's scary. Snail you know what the cone snail shell looks like. No, it's I don't the think long, so. it's the long, like spirally like shell. Oh, it looks like a cone. Like that. A, okay, I actually think I do know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> if, if you see them, if you see them like on the beach on the ground, don't go near them because they no, can they... shoot. If you go to pick off, they can shoot a little barb at you, and it's like really, you can get really sick, or I, I think it can potentially kill you. They're super deadly. Yeah. Oh, they are really some deadly. Of, some of them are, anyways. Yeah. Wow. So, I had no be idea. Be careful of what snails you pick up. Yeah. Oh, I guess this is all of the, uh, the. Ocean stuff I know from growing up in Arizona. <laughs> I grew up by the ocean. All I know is that if it's a terrible, strange-looking monster beast in a puddle, don't go near it. Yeah, if it looks pretty, probably don't touch it also. Yeah, okay. don't touch pretty things. We're talking about like bioaccumulation. Yeah, so that happens with everything, and that's, that's how all of this uh, potassium-40 and the polonium-210 gets into ocean life and stuff like fish. Because it's eating something, maybe some plankton will pick up a little bit, and then something it'll get eaten by something, and then eventually the tuna's eating that. Right. So it just accumulates a lot of it. Okay. Um, well, the was uh, emitted from the Fukushima reactor was this was two different isotopes, cesium one thirty four and cesium one thirty seven. Uh, so we can you can tell pretty easily just by looking at the uh, at which elements are in a fish or in an area of water, whether it's come from the nuclear power plant or just from the ocean naturally. Uh, You can't just say, oh, this radiation is from this, because there's already that natural radiation. 
but the cesium is not natural. So that's, that's what we can use as a marker. Um, and the cesium says it mimics potassium, so it'll go into the, uh, into the fish, and I don't know where potassium goes in, in an animal. It goes into whichever part is most like the banana. <laughs> uh, potassium, I think, is um, used a lot in like nervous functions. Is uh, one of the like potassium ions are part of what fires in your your nerves. I guess okay. is a simple way to explain it. I think it also has to do with um, uh, muscle fiber lubrication between the individual muscle fibers. All right. right. Okay, oh yeah, yeah, that's what this says. It says it accumulates in the muscles. Okay. So that makes sense. So that's where all of the potassium is building up in the muscles, and then we're, uh, and then that just stays there, because there's nowhere for it to, to really go after that. And that's the yeah. part we eat. Yeah, and that's the part you eat anyway. Yeah. Goes into us. So we're probably <laughs> a pretty toxic animal, because we're very high on a food chain. Maybe. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't eat people then. Maybe we should not eat people. They're huh, instead interesting. Of, <laughs> instead of the moral arguments, let's use a bioaccumulation <laughs> argument against cannibals. Okay. Just in case you weren't convinced. <laughs> Humans are probably toxic. I wasn't convinced. You got so. mercury and now you've got polonium and cesium and all sorts of nasty stuff. McDonald's. McDonald's. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely don't want to eat anything that's eaten McDonald's. No. <laughs> so how much you get is definitely dependent on how much fish you eat, but this paper has a table of the effective dose, effective doses of different radionuclides uh, for eating fish. So it says if you were eating this, particularly the Pacific bluefin tuna. Um, since that's what everybody's worried about in this case. Mm-hmm. In the United States, so this is fish that has had to swim all the way across the Pacific Ocean. So I think that takes about four months for them to, I don't know if the correct term is migrate. Uh, yeah. Okay. Party. So, yeah, that's why I think it's probably a party. party. <laughs> they party across the <laughs> hey, Pacific Ocean. Let's party all the Let's way. Let's go to America. <laughs> go to America and get eaten. Yeah. So it says in, in the United States, uh, they find about, uh oh, what am I doing? What am I looking for? I see what you're looking at. Okay. Okay. You're yeah. talking about 137 or 134. Well, we have to add them together because okay. both of them are the, from the. So United disaster. States, uh, you want to talk about, so wet, there's a number of things in this table. Which one do you want to talk about? Well, let's just go straight to. Sieverts. Nano Sieverts. Yeah. So if you eat one kilogram of Pacific bluefin tuna, you get about 40 nanosieverts of total cesium from the, uh, from this, from cesium alone. Yeah, from cesium alone. And that's from the, the nuclear power plant. Then if you look at the other radio, radionuclides in there, uh, the polonium, the natural polonium, you get about 23,000 nanosieverts from that same one kilogram right. of, of fish. That's enormous. Which, Comparison. so that's, yeah, you could say it's a uh, 2,000 times larger. 
And how much different, if you look at, uh, and then we can also see from Japan, if you look at this, the polonium figure is the same, but it, around Japan, if you look at the cesium, uh, the sum of the two is about uh, 300, uh, Five, about 600. 600, yeah. It's about 600 nanosieverts as compared to about 40 nanosieverts. But that's still tiny in comparison to the amount of polonium and potassium. Yeah, so it's, wow, that's that's 40 times more. What is 40 times more than what? The Japanese dose, or the Japanese amount. From cesium? Yeah. Compared to uh, ours? Uh, yeah, 40. 600 divided so by... So a little bit more than 40 times. Yeah, it's so about 40 times 40 as much. 50, 40, yeah, 40 to 50 times as much that they're getting. Than us, but it's still it's still tiny in comparison to the amount that you get from the polonium in the first place. That's true. So it really, I don't think it matters too much. Um, well, I think that's the point of this paper is yeah. that there's there's no, <laughs> it's the the radiation that you get is so much less than than you would, and these are the, both the same kinds of ionizing radiation, both alpha ionizing radiation. So I'm looking at these other units. They have these becquerels per kilogram, right? In uh, I guess that's dried. Dry? Oh, well, here's where we probably want to talk about the units that you wanted to talk yeah, about. So what's a, what is a nanosievert? We were just talking yeah. about sieverts. Well, the, so the sieverts... Let me pull something up real quick. Uh, so the first thing I, I want to... Sievert is, is related to... Um, sievert is an estimation of how much effect a radioactive dose will have on cells in the body. So a sievert is not how much radiation you're getting, it's it's a an overall weighted estimate of how much effect there is on you from the radiation dose that you get. So, um, to calculate sieverts, one what you basically have is you have radiation uh, or amount of you have if you have ra- amount of radioactive material um, per unit volume, and then multiplied by a weighting factor, and for uh, gamma and beta radiation. The rating factor is 1, for alpha it's 20. So alpha is the majority of what is going to be damaging you from some radioactive source, as far as calculation of sieverts goes. And then all of that would be per time. So if you have a dose over a large period of time versus a small period of time, then the sieverts is is higher or lower. Um, so but that, that leads me then to the unit of a becquerel. So I looked into what is a becquerel, because some of the first reports I had seen of the Fukushima leak, they're saying 175 billion becquerels a day or something like that. And I see everyone, you know, people I know going, oh my god, 175 billion becquerels, it's so much. And I was like, okay, so let's look at what a becquerel is. And a becquerel is defined as, um, it refers to the amount of ionizing radiation released when an element such as uranium, spontaneously emits energy as a result of the radioactive decay of an unstable atom. So, uh, so one becquerel is basically a uh, rate of decay equal to one disintegration per second. So if you have one atom and it's going to, going to disintegrate into another atom, which may be stable or unstable, that one disintegration is one becquerel. So, for the sake of, a, of an, an estimation, if you want to talk about how many becquerels you get per amount of matter, if you have a, a, a material where each atom has one disintegration until it turns into the next thing, if the next thing it turns into is stable, then you would get one becquerel per atom. That's based off that those assumptions. 
that may not be true. Um, so if you let's think of a of a, a radioactive isotope we have that decays into something stable, like astatine decays into bismuth. Okay. Right. Okay. So what it decays into is stable. That means that you you would get one decay per atom until that once that atom decays, it would become a bismuth. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So that would mean that if you had one mole of astatine and all of it decayed into bismuth, how many becquerels would you have? You'd have six times 10 to the 23 becquerels, right? But so then you need to know becquerels per volume. So becquerels per volume will then tell you about how much radiation dose you're, radiation dose you're actually getting. So for the longest time, I was seeing all these videos people post about politicians and, you know, some expert comes on and tells us all about how, you know, we need to shut down all the, all of the nuclear plants in the world because this happened with Fukushima and, uh, it's killing us all and we're all going to be getting cancer in 20 years and dying. Right. And so, but none of them would say how much is actually being released into the ocean. None of them. They say there's this much, it's so much and it's, and it's bad. They'd all say, this many becquerels or tons of radiation or 400 million tons of radioactive water, but none of these things actually mean anything. Uh, until I finally found a report which estimated 100 million, or was it 100 million? I think it was 10, yeah, it was 100 million. 100 million becquerels per cubic meter of water. So if you want to look at that in terms of a concentration, if a becquerel is approximately, let's say in the case of astatine, if a becquerel is approximately one atom, then you're talking about 10 million atoms in a cubic meter of water. A cubic meter of water is, uh, I calculated this a while ago, it's, it's approximately 55,000 moles. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it's approximately 55,000 because 18 grams is a, is a mole. I calculated from that it's approximately 55,000 moles in a cubic meter of water. So if you talk about a concentration, you're talking about, you know, per day, if, if 100 million becquerels are released into a cubic meter of water, that means that that cubic meter of water has 10, it was, uh, I believe it was 10 to the minus 21% of that, of that cubic meter is than that amount of radioactive material. So not very much. Not very much. Okay. <laughs> I further calculated how long it would take, how long it would take if you release that much per day to reach a concentration of one part per billion, and it was something on the order of 900 million years. So that's, that's substantially small. So usually we talk about toxins and things like that in in concentrations of parts per billion, or parts per million even. Depending. It depends on the toxicity. Well, yeah. Something's really... I, I don't know anything about how we would say parts per million toxicity for a radioactive. Well, we, we can from this, this, if we look at this, um, we look at this, this publication, they give us some information we might be able to use about this. So becquerels per kilogram, let's say. If you have this many becquerels per kilogram. So it says dry. What does dry mean? After you kill the fish and dry it out. So taken out of the water. Dry to wet weight conversion factor. Based on a dry to wet weight conversion factor of 0.244. Does that mean that the dry is 0.24 or is approximately 24%, 24% the weight of the wet fish? Of the yeah. Wet. Okay. 
So let's say that we eat one kilogram. So if you look at the United States, what they're saying is, let's look at it wet. We, you eat when one kilogram of fresh fresh fish, right? You're getting approximately two and a half becquerels per kilogram, right? So a kilograms, 2.2 pounds. So if you eat a pound of fish, you're getting a little more than one. You're getting a little more than one becquerel when you eat that, right? That's a fair estimation. So a little more than one becquerel. So I'm looking at this dosage chart. I find this really interesting. For anybody who wants to find it, if you just Google XKCD radiation, there's this really great radiation chart. And it seems to be pretty well sourced. Um, it says, yeah, chart by Randall Monroe with help from Ellen, senior reactor operator at the Reed Research Reactor. Hmm. And there's a bunch of sources on it. And what it basically shows is a variety of um, things that we do or things that we're ex- exposed to, and how many sieverts um, they give us. Now, it, it 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 goes all the way, starts all the way with something as small as sleeping next to somebody, and then heads all the way into things like a variety of medical uh, diagnostic techniques, like MRIs, uh, CT scans, uh, you know, EPA yearly limit on radiation exposure to a single member of the public, <laughs> something like. <laughs> One milli- so you shouldn't really get more than one millisievert um, per year. And if we talk about something like eating one banana, it's 0.1 microsieverts. Mm-hmm. And I think a good reference point sure. is the background dose radiation received by an average person over one normal day, and that is 10 microsieverts. You have to eat a lot of bananas in a day to equal, <laughs> equal the... Uh, the background radiation dose you receive. Yeah, there's already a lot of cosmic radiation, and then there's a lot of that radiation, like we were talking right. about, from stuff like radon and uh, and all that that's right. already being emitted just from the ground. And let's be uh, one thing they clarify, they they make very clear on this thing is uh, it says using a cell phone, zero microsieverts. And so <laughs> a cell phone's transmitter does not produce ionizing radiation. <laughs> so that's important to know. That's microwave produces radio radiation. <laughs> my uh, my dad will be very happy to hear that because he's his favorite lecture is about how I'm going to get brain tumors from spending too much time on my phone. <laughs> yeah, it's never. I've I've always seen articles about that, but I've never seen it's. They've never been credible, and I've I've never seen any real research that shows anything about it. it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, but yeah, yeah I, I agree. This paper doesn't actually talk about any of the other toxic things in tuna. Uh, yeah, but what other like we, you talked about earlier, there's the mercury that bioaccumulates. Mercury is the big one. Um, just, yeah, mercury is the biggest one. There's also um, not, I think maybe not as much in tuna, but uh, PCBs, like flame retardants. Um, you find those more because it gets stored in fat. You find those more in things like whales and dolphins. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's PCBs also in tuna. So um, it's... If if you're worried about eating tuna, it should not be from the radiation for sure. It's um, they recommend like children shouldn't eat more than uh, one serving of tuna a month, um, and pregnant women shouldn't eat it at all because it uh, gets passed through the placenta. Um, mercury is obviously really bad. <laughs> mercury poisoning is not something you want to have. So uh, if you're worried about eating tuna. 
Radiation's probably the least of your concerns, because mercury will make you really sick, and it won't take that much to do it. Okay. How, how, how much is too much, like, uh... Um, I had an article, oh my gosh, my, my computer, uh, crashed earlier, and I had all these articles up that I wanted to bring up, and then I lost them. Uh-huh. My computer forgot about them also. Um, I found the numbers for the, uh, mercury contamination, and it's on average, like, 0.32 parts per million, uh, in, like, canned tuna and that kind of stuff, uh, and I think, like, the maximum that is recommended, at least in Canada, is 0.5, but a lot of the times they find stuff that slips through the cracks that's over the recommended. Wow, it's on the same order of magnitude as the recommended dose? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. What? How is that even possible? Does that mean, so, so you're saying that I eat a can of tuna? So a can of, like, white tuna is 0.32 parts per million, and uh, the the maximum by Canadian guidelines, as far as I know, is 0.5 parts per million. Wow. 0.5 parts per million that you should take in. Yeah. Per how many, for how much Well, time? that should, that should be in the, um, in that the should tuna. be in the tuna. Oh, okay. So, that, so that's so the max, maximum health limit or whatever yeah that's the maximum health limit and then the guidelines are yeah that kids should only eat it like kids under the age of six should only eat it once a month and kids between the age of six and 12 should only eat it twice a month and i think uh, i don't know for adults because everyone's so worried about their children (laughs) (laughs) nobody cares about adults yeah Yeah, we're not really supposed to leave past live past 35 anyway yeah right yeah well i mean i figure if it's if it's good enough for a six-year-old it's good enough for me i don't want to eat anything that's like you know yeah we're just going to be putting ethanol into our bodies and yeah that's true breathing <laughs> in, uh, carbon smoke anyway so yeah what else do people do this? what does even matter you try yeah. car uh, everything's gonna kill you <laughs> yeah. oh adults uh, up to three times a month but i mean some people eat that stuff for lunch every day there's another table in this paper we need to finish this up. Yep. I've been talking about this paper for almost an hour. <laughs> okay. This was supposed to be 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, this is a big gonna, deal, though. Because... It is a big deal, yeah. But it's... I don't know how much we've actually convinced people instead of just, like, patting ourselves on the back. I guess, yeah. but I think that I think that what's important... The reason why this get makes me think, or the reason why this makes me want to react, the idea that people are, are starting to... Trying to demonize nuclear power from this spill, which is really quite minor in terms of radioactive contamination as far as the fish goes that we're seeing, Mm -hmm. um, is that nuclear power is amazing. Like, it's it's a tremendous amount of power for a tremendously small amount of resource. And if if you demonize it, you'll get all these people that have these false beliefs about it, and they'll start voting to shut down these plants, and then... And the, there, there you go. And then Congratulations. destroying the environment by using coal power plants instead of something that all you have to do is hide this nuclear waste in a mountain for yeah that hundred thousand years, which <laughs> is a stud is a, a struggle. That's going to be difficult. It's a thing, but it, you know, it's it's not as bad as as the coal pollution and the and the oil pollution. Fossil fuel pollution is terrible, and it's getting worse, <laughs> really bad. Yeah. 
it's getting worse really really quickly, not really badly. And then but, I uh, guess there's the Gen 4 nuclear reactors that can use the, the spent fuel anyway, so it just uses it over and over, and then there's no place, you don't have to store right. the used fuel for a There's all these time. new types of reactors that have been designed that haven't been built, and then there's these fusion reactors that they're starting to develop now, these, these tokamak reactors. Nuclear power is... Is, is is pretty much everything that we want out of an out of an energy <laughs> technology and out of an energy solution. I would argue it's it's ultimately better than solar because uh, I've I've been doing projects on like res- I've been looking at a lot of like resource resource demand and resource usages from from solar. And I was reading this paper by a a guy from a professor from Berkeley who said that if right now we harvested all of the minerals that we need for solar energy and dedicated them all to solar energy right now, we would still have an extreme limitation on just how much solar energy we can harvest. So yeah, the sun is infinite, but the tools that we could possibly make, even with the supplies given to us by our planet right now and our current solar energy collection technologies, would not allow us to meet anywhere near the world's energy demands, especially not in the coming decades, with solar energy. And and wind won't supplement it either, supplements it a bit. So I think nuclear is like the only thing that we really have to look forward to right now that has a chance of meeting our energy demands and possibly getting rid of coal and oil usage for energy generation. And if people are trying to demonize it so that no one, everybody thinks it's some sort of like hocus pocus voodoo, like giant bomb waiting to happen and it's just this huge mistake when that's completely false, that it's, it's an extreme detriment to our progress. Rant yeah. over. So. <laughs> right. so. Well, I guess that is uh, sort of a good segue into our next story wind. Uh, about yes, yeah. about this uh, Atlantic Array wind farm. We will. Anyway, it's moving on. We have to pretend to fly across the United States and go into the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. Let's say fly across North America. We're a multinational podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we flying again? I missed this. We're, we're, we started in the Pacific Ocean. Now we're going to the UK. I don't like the sausage in the UK. It's a BBC News article. Uh, talks about the or title is Atlantic Array Wind Farm Dropped by a Developer. So they were going to build a giant 240 turbine Atlantic Array uh, off the coast of North Devon. Am I pronouncing that right? Devon or Devon? I think it's I think it's Devon. Okay, North Devon coast. And uh, they've recently shelved it. So I guess there's a few, a lot of people are happy about this, and a lot of people are sad about this. Um, People obviously like wind turbines, because they're green energy. But there were a lot of people, specifically local, and a lot of environmental people, who were worried about the impact that these wind turbines would have 
Now, these were just regular wind turbines. They were just going to be out in the middle of the ocean. Impact on what? Well, there's a lot of impacts, I think. Um, there's, there's like, local ec- uh, ecological concerns. Yeah, I know noise pollution is a, a big concern for a lot of people. Well, these are out in the middle of the ocean, though. I mean, they were talking... Oh, yeah, no, 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 for uh, <laughs> marine animals, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, like, uh, sea turtles and whales especially... Uh, will use sound like whales use sound to navigate and to communicate and there's a huge huge amount of noise pollution in the ocean already and if you have as sensitive hearing as those kinds of animals do it probably sounds like uh, a rock concert down there (laughs) to them most of the time like from tankers and seismic activity and uh yeah there's there's it's a huge problem that never occurred to me Wind yeah, turbines, they, yeah, they, of course they're going to be loud. There's going to be some sound conduction down that tube to uh, the water. Most of it probably wow. goes down the tube. Yeah, like there, I mean, there are whales that communicate all the way across the ocean, and uh, so obviously having something that's really loud like that could really mess that up. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's a long-term ecological effect. Um, what other kind of thing do you think it could do? Have you, do you, can you think of anything else? Um, I mean, it might, it might mess up, like, my, migration patterns and stuff like that for, from fish and other animals that are just trying to stay away from it. Uh, if it's loud or anything like that. Okay. And then I guess you have to think about the construction that would have to happen, because I'm sure it would take yeah. many years to build, so there's gonna be boats and people there all the time. Yeah, and like, I don't know what the sort of, um, what the seabed habitat is like there, but there's a lot of really sensitive uh, marine ecosystems out in the open ocean. Uh, I mean, I have, I don't know. It doesn't say anything in the article, but for all I know, it could be on a deep sea coral reef. And those things take hundreds and hundreds of years to grow and people tend to mow them over. Like it's no big deal. Really? You can just go and destroy coral. Oh yeah. Yeah. We do it in Canada all the time. We're really good at it. Really? Wow, I had no idea. I thought coral was, like, super protected. Well, not when it's, you know, hundreds of feet at the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) Okay, so we only care about the pretty coral reefs that people go scuba diving at? Yep, yep. Wow. But there are some some really cool ones, and they're super slow-growing, even more so than uh, the surface reefs and, uh, like, sponges, uh, all kinds of really sensitive... Uh, habitats that are down there that, yeah, people, uh, things, certain fishing methods like trawling and stuff like that where they just go and scrape the bottom of the ocean up and they just mow over these things that have been there for hundreds of years without too much thought about it. (laughs) Yeah. So that could definitely be one if they're uh, doing any dredging or anything like that and knocking up all kinds of sediment. Um, That could be an issue for filter feeders and yeah, there's probably quite a quite a lot going on there. Yeah, it'll probably definitely knock up a lot of sediment. I mean, you have to drill. Trying to think about the construction method for something like this would be you would have to make a huge cement thing, pylon, and somehow drill it into the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how they go about building something that has to be rooted at the bottom of the ocean when you're eight miles out. Yeah, it's probably similar to oil drilling. Or something. Yeah, it's yeah I. Know a few people. Actually, I have a cousin who works on um, 
who works for sort of a planning department for an oil rig company, and it's pretty intense. It's scary jobs. Wow, yeah. You got a lot of scuba divers down there. I don't think yeah. you can. Probably too deep to scuba Oh, you dive. can. Yeah, uh, you can use um, different mixes of oxygen that allow you to stay down for longer. Um, but it's super dangerous, and your life expectancy is pretty well cut in half. But you get paid a lot, so <laughs> depends what your life is worth to you. Wow. And that part of the Atlantic is probably really cold, too, huh? Yeah. Over off the north coast of the UK, that's going to be Ooh, yeah. freezing yeah. cold water. I don't want to do that. I don't want to swim in that. <laughs> I'd rather be in a mine, personally. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather mine uranium in a lead suit than <laughs> than, than scuba dive to the bottom of the ocean. The bottom of the ocean. Yeah, the deep like blackness of the sea kind of freaks me out, but like being down underground doesn't. Okay, I think it's because I'd rather die in a cave in than drown. Because at least you're on ground. <laughs> Probably because you die a lot faster <laughs> in a cave in. <laughs> well, unless something caves in behind you and you suffocate. Yeah, they are probably dying about the same rate suffocation and drowning. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> well, you probably pass out before you suffocate. That's true. All yeah, right. so you probably get have trouble breathing for a while, and then you pass out. So maybe dying in a mine is better. <laughs> yeah, probably, I think it's probably better to suffocate in a, in a walled-off chasm okay. than to drown. I'm sure there's a lot of other technical challenges for, for building a offshore wind farm, too. It's got to use a lot of expensive materials. I mean, a wind farm is already super expensive because you need big magnets and lots of huge things that are uh, structurally strong. <coughs> but in addition to that, because you're putting it in the ocean, you're going to have to add a lot of corrosion resistance to it, too. So that means using a lot of more expensive alloys than you might have to use uh, otherwise. I don't know what kind of materials would would last a really long time. Um, I imagine they're using stainless steel, probably a lot of fiberglass. Ceramics, maybe. Ceramics. Very yeah, strong ceramic know. pipes. Ceramic, like uh, glass ceramics are really strong. I would think they would use glass ceramics. Might be heavy, though. Yeah, so it's steel. Yeah. You think ceramics are really that much heavier than steel? Probably not. Big ceramic pipes. I don't know if there are many ceramic building materials. If there are that many. They make missiles out of glass ceramics. Yeah, but a missile is nothing compared to how big a wind farm is. That's true. It's 220 meters tall. One turbine. They could use unobtainium. They'd have to use unobtainium. <laughs> <laughs> I want some unobtainium. To go to, I don't even remember the name of the planet, Pandora, and get yeah. some of that. Pandora is the name of a lot of fictional planets. Yeah. I don't know why. It's probably just, People has, like to call it that. I don't know. Probably because of the... Borderlands. <laughs> I, th- I think it's probably because of mythology. Why? Pandora's box and that kind of... Those stories. Well, anyway, this, this company was uh, RWE... Enology, and they they just decided not to build this uh, this wind farm. That's not really a story for us, but it, it was a good uh, 
Kajumi Point, and sort of related to the tuna, since it was in the ocean. Right, yeah, but so, I love wind turbines, personally. I think they look crazy awesome. I think a lot of people actually complain about them. I think they look cool, but I do think that there are a lot of uh, negative impacts that haven't been studied properly enough. I know that We know that they, they hurt birds when they fly through them, and then the underwater wind turbines really mess up uh, ocean migration of fish. They kill a lot of fish. You mean a turbine underwater that underwater turns turbines. from the ocean current? Yeah, yeah, the tidal or the, the... I never even heard of those. Yeah, there's there are some of them. Uh, there are some more safe ones that are like bags that just get squeezed when the tide comes, squeezed in different places when the tide comes in and out, and they're generating, trying to generate power from that. I mentioned wind turbines, kinds. underwater wind turbines and the tidal things that aren't really turbines. Right. I mean, I know people from my home area. They wanted to build some. They wanted to build some wind turbines, and and it got shut down because nobody wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. They all thought these are ugly. I was like, "You're ugly." <laughs> I was like, "They look better than you." It's the whole "not in my backyard" thing. I mean, oh, it's exactly. Gotta go in someone's backyard. Yeah. Well, it's and a wind turbine farm exactly. looks nicer than a uh, big coal plant and a coal plant or anything like that. Yeah. I personally think that. We could, if we kind of like shift the culture, we have to find a way to make it like cool to look advanced. You know, I think there are a lot of people who do think it's cool. Many more people now. Many think more it's cool. Like in Germany, I think they don't have many problems. There's a lot of wind farms there. Yeah, they have a ton of solar. A lot of solar, a lot of wind. Which is solar is weird because it's not always sunny there. Well, it just goes to show you that the the, the people who make the argument here, well. What am I going to do with solar? It's not sunny all year, huh? Like, okay, well, look at Germany. They get more they get more cloud cover than the northeast U.S. does, or comparable, at least. Yep. And they have tons of solar. They have more solar than we have here in the southwest. And we we and have yeah, every we have reason to have sun. tons of We have every reason to have virtually every single surface that there is as a solar panel. Yeah. Well, that's what ASU is doing, at least. Our school is covering all the roofs and all the walkways. They're making like these big shaded areas that are just solar panels up top. That's great. That's awesome. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, I know we, uh, we had sort of a proposal for a wind farm a couple hours outside of where I live, and it was a huge struggle of you know people who considered them and themselves environmentalists and still just didn't want to look at it or hear it. They thought it was going to be too loud. And, uh, you know, I, I think they look awesome, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people need to sort of, uh, get over the change. Yeah. It's going to be different. I mean, there's already people living next to power plants. They don't look nice. People look at living next to industrial factories and that kind of stuff. And now, if you don't want to pay for power from those things, you're going to have to uh, deal with the wind and the solar closer to you. Yep. Maybe the nuclear power plant. Most people freak out about living near a nuclear power plant. Yeah. I lived near one for a while. Uh, I could see it out my window. Really? Yeah. And it was, uh, when I went to college in Oswego, New York, they had a nuclear power plant out on like a little jut of land, like a peninsula type land that went out into Lake Ontario. Two of them. Okay. Not it was one plant, but it had two, two reactors uh, columns. Yeah. Um, I thought it looked pretty cool. 
And all it really did was it actually warmed the lake up a little bit, so it made it nicer for you to... <laughs> so oh, that's that's probably not great for the environment of the lake, though. It actually it actually <laughs> it, it actually was because the vegetation growth was massively accelerated. So it's just Isn't way that bad more for fish. No, they they eat it and they eat the little the bugs that live in it and they. Most of the time, you could not go in that water though because it was like forty degrees all year because the winter is so long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we lost Heather again for a minute there. Yeah. I don't this think might that. this might be difficult. <laughs> All right. Does anybody else have much else to say about uh, wind farms? I want to say these guys are goons. They're goons. You uh, you yeah. wish that they would have continued with it? Yeah, but I understand. They're they're saying that there's uh they have financial concerns. Yeah, they have financial. They have environmental concerns and engineering and engineering engineering yeah. challenges that they need to think about, and they, they just jumped into it too early, and they got to on the shelf for now. It's fine. Yeah. Maybe by the time they actually build it, there will be <laughs> something better. Something with less of an impact that can uh, generate just as much power. Yep. Alright. Let's go over to the next paper then, which is talking a- about super hydrophobic materials. So there's a lot of stuff with uh, a lot of research into hydrophobic materials lately because they're they're good for things like uh, aerospace where you don't want ice forming on wings or engines or on windows or anything like that. So you make something super hydrophobic so water can't stick to it. Um, it's also they spray it on uh, your work clothes so that your clothes don't get dirty or oily. Um, hydrophobic is just, just it keeps water off of it. Stuff that's basically afraid of water, I guess is what hydrophobic means. <laughs> I'm afraid of water. Are you afraid of water? Are you a cat? Or a wicked witch of the West? <laughs> I don't know what is going on, but every time it touches me, I melt a little. So you're a wicked witch of the West, basically. I don't think I'm a witch. I'm not green. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not from the West. We saw Oz, you know. I don't like Oz. I have bad memories of Oz. <laughs> the time I was there. Alright, well, this this paper comes from, uh, I guess, your previous hometown, MIT. And yeah. the, uh, the title is, it's a paper published in Nature Letters, and the title is Reducing the Contact Time of a Bouncing Drop. It's from James Bird at MIT again. So what they want to do is uh, making something more hydrophobic is kind of a constant advancement, but we thought that we had reached the theoretical limit uh, with some super hydrophobic materials based off of uh, lotus flowers before. So lotus flowers are just super hydro or super water repellent. Any water drops that land on them, they just kind of drip off. 
Um, but now what they're doing is they have this paper specifically, they've managed to find a way to get a water droplet that's dropped onto the surface bounce off even faster than it did before. Um, so normally what happens is a water droplet that you just drop on a normal surface will stay, start out round, it'll fall, hit it, and then it spreads out, and then it will form back into a drop shape. And that the angle between the surface and the like the edge of the water drop is called the wetting angle. And it really is just a measure of how much the water droplet spreads out after a certain amount of time. So these super hydrophobic materials, they have a very high wetting angle. I think a more, a more, uh, visual way to explain that that might help somebody who doesn't know what that would mean is if you imagine sort of a, a ball, like a, like a hard ball, like a baseball or something hard on the, on a surface, it only makes contact with the surface at a very, very small area, a very small point, um, at the bottom, that would represent a very high contact angle or a very hydrophobic surface. It means that the 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 water droplet does not it, making contact with the surface is not energetically favorable for it in comparison to it uh, tensing up into a sphere and making less contact with the surface. Uh, the opposite of that would be a very low contact angle or a surface that is highly wettable to that, to the water. And an example of that would be if you imagine something more like a, like a jello, like a ball or like a blob of jello sort of on the surface, it kind of, it spreads out and it's less like a sphere. It's more like a, like a bump or a little hill on the surface that, uh, can spread out and make a lot of contact with the surface. That would be a very low contact angle. Something that's hydrophilic or something that likes to have water stick to it or is as far as surface thermodynamics go, is energetically favorable that the surface of the water uh, spread out onto the surface of whatever material. That would be something hydrophilic, as where the opposite, which is the sphere shape, would be something hydrophobic. It basically means that water will bead up on it, make very, very sphere-like tight beads on the surface. Yeah, that sounds just right. That's a pretty good... uh... Semiconductor processing. Explanation. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's a big topic in, in how you, uh, how you wet very small structures if you have very, very, uh, tiny lines that you've made through lithography, mm-hmm. right? And then let's say you're going to, you're trying to get a liquid down into them to clean them or something like that. You can't. If you're, if your trenches are 10 nanometers, you can't get water droplets in there. You have to engineer a liquid that can get into those cracks because when you put a dr- when you put liquid on that surface a water droplet is going to form a contact angle that's large enough such that just it on just the sits the on the it, yeah it sits at the edges of the holes and just bows down a little bit and doesn't actually fall okay break apart and fall into the hole so that's a pretty important thing for for, for semiconductor semi, yeah. processing interesting right. yeah and okay. en- engineering of those liquids is actually a huge topic um and making liquids that are extremely low viscosity that have vir- virtually like no van der Waals forces at all. They, they just, just flow. They flow through almost anything, right? Cool. Okay. So I guess the what? I think it's the, also they call it the study uh, nanofluidics. I think that might be what it's called. Yeah. All right. 
that's pretty cool. There's a ton okay, of stuff so. in that. What are we, <laughs> we were talking about? Yeah. Uh, so they used a, a water drop bouncing test, I guess, on this on this material. And on a normal super hydrophobic surface, the, the way this test works is you have a flat piece of this hydrophobic material, and you, they drop a water droplet on it uh, from 1.3... Wait, no, uh, it doesn't say from how high, but it says that the impact velocity is 1.2 meters per second. So the water droplet's going pretty quick. What's the speed again? 1.2 meters per second. Is how fast the water droplet's going. And they, they, they shoot it at yeah. the surface. So they shoot be... the water droplet on a normal super hydrophobic surface. This isn't the one that they are describing in this paper. This is just like the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the droplet will hit the surface, spread out, and then clump back together and fly up, bouncing off. So it has to actually hit it, deform that way, and then coalesce back up. And, and I'm trying to wonder why it would coalesce back together. Because why the would... surface is super hydrophobic and the surface tension... It's minimizing the surface. I see. This is, right. Area. It's more energetically favorable for it to reduce contact with the surface. Yes. So yeah. it takes a lot of energy for it to spread that much in the first place. And then as that energy is lost to the surface, either kinetically or thermodynamically, as there's vibrations, it goes reduces back. back to the more energetically yep. favorable shape. And in that, going back to the droplet, it will actually bounce off. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's got to be some elastic aspects to the, yeah. to the kinetics. Yeah, I think they said if you, if you take the center, the center of mass is just an elastic, an elastic collision. So normally, it's, a, it's elastic. I'm sorry, it's inelastic. Okay. Well, it'll not have, not completely inelastic. But. Yeah, it'll have some coefficient of restitution. I don't know what that is. Coefficient of restitution is the so is the uh, description of how close something is to being perfectly elastic or perfectly inelastic. Ah, okay. So if you drop a ball from a height and it bounces, it goes right back to where you dropped it at, that's a coefficient of one. If you drop it, it hits the surface and it just stops directly on the surface, that's a coefficient of zero. Okay. I yeah. guess I have somehow missed that in all of my physics classes. It's a very basic physics thing that that usually doesn't show up actually. But I even taught physics one, so I should I should have well, whatever. It's a very simple thing. That's why usually yeah, why they that makes they leave sense. It out. No, there, you could figure it out in five seconds if you needed to. Yeah, if you understand the ba- if you understand you know a decent amount about you know you know doing the elastic or inelastic scattering problems, even not just a, like a glancing angle type, but a a direct collision, you know, just a direct collision, then you could figure out. Oh, hey, look, every single. Interaction, every single collision results in me having either 100% of the energy going back in the other direction or some amount which is less than that. Less than that or yeah. even zero. Okay. So you can imagine in a realistic scenario, you can describe that as a percent. That makes sense. Yeah. Between zero and one. Right. Okay. So in this test, a normal super hydrophobic silicon surface uh, takes 12.4 milliseconds for the drop to fly back up off the surface to bounce back. Is it fast? That's well that's the normal <laughs> time. That's the theoretical limit, I suppose, uh, according to this. Or at least that's close to the theoretical limit. You're reading the actual paper. Yeah, I'm reading the actual paper, not the I didn't actually read the news article. <laughs> oh, I read the news article. Let's see. Where's this actual paper? I want to pull this up. There's a link 
yeah, there you go, nature. So what, what they've done to this is they put little ridges every so often on the surface, and they drop this water droplet right on the middle of one of those little bumps. And these are really tiny bumps. So what ends up happening is that when the water droplet drops on there, it spreads out just like it normally would, but then when it starts clumping back together, it clumps faster along the ridge than it did than it does along the normal parts, so it ends up splitting into two water droplets. And because it splits into two water droplets, the radius is smaller, and it can actually bounce off faster than it could on just a normal flat surface. Atomization. Not exactly, but... <laughs> but, yeah. It's a non-axisymmetric recoil, they call it. So this Non-axisymmetric recoil. Yeah. So this... Uh, this time, it only takes 7.8 milliseconds for the water droplet to bounce off. So I don't know how much of an effect that will have, practically, compared to a normal superhydrophilic surface, but it, it certainly could. Sorry, what, what was that speed again? The original speed and then the one they achieved? The original speed is 12.4 milliseconds. And they reduced it to what? 7.8 milliseconds is the second speed. Oh, I see that. I, found, yeah, I just found it. Neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. How does this help us? Well, it makes things even more hydrophobic. So something that you really need water to get off of as quickly as possible, um, now you know to put those. You need to put a little nanostructure on it. Huh. I should cover myself in this so when I take a shower, I microstructure. Off. There you go. So then you'd never get wet in the first place. So I'd never be really be taking a shower. Yeah. It would. <laughs> the water droplets would just bounce off you. That would be terrible, actually. It might be. It would be like having a thin film of plastic over you at all times. <laughs> It might be something like, well, I mean, you would basically be having a, a thin film of plastic over you. Yeah, you would, actually. Because it, this hydrophobic material is, uh, it is a plastic. fluorosilane. Sounds like a plastic they, to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what, I don't what know that much is. About plastics. But I know that they deposit it using laser or laser ablation. So it's not nanostructured. These are, these are large textured ridges. I mean, yeah. They're millimeter sizes, not a. Yeah, it's on the order of point. Well, I'm looking at the SEM images of these some a couple of these surfaces, and their scales are 10 microns. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's pretty big. Most of the, yeah, so these features are approximately, these features are like 3 to 10 microns large. This is neat. There's a lot of symmetry to this, actually. They said it's not symmetric. It looks such symmetric to me. Maybe their term doesn't mean it's symmetric in the same way. What do you mean? It's not axis. It's not axis symmetric. Axis, so it takes yeah. it... Normally, move. you drop it down, and it bounces back the same way. Right. This now, is not. It's you drop it down, two it creates axes. two axes, and it comes up on the two different axes. Yeah, and they're probably angled, because you have to have conservation of momentum. Yeah, they probably would have to be. So what they've realized is that you can actually do a lot of this super hydrophobic uh, modification using just this structure. So they don't. it doesn't have to be necessarily a... Uh, a polymer. The the article says that most super hydrophobic materials are very fragile polymer materials. So they break down at high temperatures or they don't stand up to like scratches and things like that. Mm -hmm. They just get taken off, um, which I guess is similar to like a Teflon coating in your cooking pan. Mm -hmm. Eventually it decomposes because of the heat and because you're scratching it with a metal knife that you're not supposed to be using in the cooking pan in the first place. I only use plastic on Teflon. I <laughs> actually know how Teflon works. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> So this this is a uh, could be applied to a lot more things than just these polymer hydrophobic materials. So it says you can apply it to things like ceramics, 
and metal hydrophobe things that want to be hydrophobic. Um, and then they can continue working on it to improve the properties. They said uh, they're looking at they're looking at butterfly wings, which actually have intersecting ridges, so it actually splits it into four. And the more water droplets you spit one split one droplet into, the faster it's actually going to bounce off, uh, just because each droplet has its own smaller radius to shrink back to. And uh, the applications for this are useful for a lot of things. I mean, like we talked about in the last one, you could use it on things like wind turbines or water turbines or jet turbines, where you have to worry about if if a water turbine is spinning, you want as little water sticking to the turbine as you, as possible. You want it all down. to get pushed through, yeah, so it doesn't weigh down. Same with an air turbine. You only want to transfer the energy to from the air to the turbine and not the other way around. Um, you don't want any water vapor sticking to the turbine blades, so you want it to be you want them to drip off real quickly. Uh, so that could increase efficiency of wind farms and power stations and uh, maybe even turbine engines. You might want to put a coating coating like that if you can on a solar panel that when it gets when it rains. Yeah, so your solar panel doesn't get dirty. Yeah. Uh, like I said earlier, you could also put it on your pants. So that when Hold you on your pants. spill grease on yourself, you don't you don't get so dirty. Um, and I think they already have like ties and that kind of stuff with like Scotch Brite sprayed on them or something. That's just uh, somewhat water resistant. All right. So that is uh, that's I think that's everything we have for today. Do you have anything else to say about uh, this? I tell you what, I would like it for. I really would like to put it on the assuming it's clear and it's optically correct and it's not going to distort any vision. Love to put it on the front face shield of a motorcycle helmet. Okay. Because when it rains, that's no bueno. That's definitely getting used to. It's like, yeah, you don't have windshield your, wipers yeah, you don't have windshield on a motorcycle. Wipers. Yeah. You don't have windshield wipers well, on your face. It's useful for cars, too, though. Uh, yeah, I mean... Not I as already, useful, because cars have windshield wipers, but... Now that I think about it, they do have something like this for... I mean, there's a Rain-X. They do have something like that for cars, actually. Just you know not as good. Do? They have that. That have that stuff. It's called that. Like uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's that spray. It's it's new. It's a really new thing they developed. It's oh. a really super hydrophobic spray. Oh, I've seen it. You I've seen videos of it. Yeah. yeah. I should try. We should get a can of that. And experiment with it. You should try to. We should fool around with that. And see yeah. what we can do. So hey, if you guys are if you're a manufacturer of a super hydrophobic material, hit us up. We'll we'll do a story on it specifically. <laughs> Send us a, a bottle of that. Um, yeah, we should try that. We should we should e- email them. They're like, look, we're a material science. We do a material science podcast, and we would really love to test out your product and do like an, an episode on it and like how cool it is. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. We could come up with cool things to do, try and do with it, and see if they work, and then test them, test the hydrophobicness of it. Might be interesting. I like this idea. Yeah, let's do try it. and do it. Let's All find right. that company and like try and write them an, e- an email. Okay, and then we'll design some things to do. So it's pretty useful stuff. Yeah. All right. Now I'm done, though. You're done now? Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Cameron Copas. My co-hosts today were Alex and Heather, who we actually lost in the middle of the last segment. So uh, she's not here to say goodbye for herself. So we'll say bye, Heather. Bye. You didn't lose me, though. No, we didn't didn't lose you. Alex is sitting right next to me. Hello. Goodbye. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening. And bye. Thanks for listening. 
This has been Let's Agree Science and Engineering Are Rad, or Laser, the Material Science Podcast. Show notes are on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email at contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast or on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating or download or listen to episodes on either iTunes or Stitcher Radio or directly from laserpodcast.com. Our intro music is Open from the band Crying, and our outro music is Dreams or Maps from the Wild. As always, you can find more information about the show, links to the stories we talk about in the show notes on our website. Thanks. Bye. sense. Um, Sorry, we're getting a phone call that's just like, oh. recorded, and we don't know how to silence it, so you might have to repeat that. Yeah, sure. Can we just unplug it for a little while? Just pull the thing out. Yeah, I guess we can unplug it. Just ma- remember to put it back in. There's gotta be a mute button. Oh, that's the, the cord. That's not, yeah. unplug the phone. You gotta get that. There you go. Oh. <laughs> you still we can still hear it in the next room. <laughs> Alright, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, I'm gonna do. Okay. So you said you alright, so they use uh Well thank you for listening to the laser podcast. Uh, I've been Cameron Copus. Who have I been? You have been, uh, at one point, maybe Alex? That's who I am currently. Okay. I've, I've only, been, I've only ever been myself. Oh, okay. That's different. Not quite <laughs> sure how to process that concept. <laughs> I think I'm listening to too many podcasts. People have weird sign-offs trying to copy them. Oh. Okay, how do we sign off? <laughs> off the Zen. From a neodymium YAG laser. A YAG. Yep. YAG laser. Neodymium YAG laser. What's going on? What are we doing? I don't know. We gotta finish talking about this thing. Yeah, we literally just they literally just stopped. We just were talking about it. all of a sudden we just went to two different things. <laughs> I don't remember where we were. Me either. We gotta finish this though. Okay. You could put it on your dome. Shave your head and I have a put real dry dome. Hydrophobic material on it and